0: Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. Today we have a special version of the show in which we are going to chat with author and academic Christine Coy. Her book, Reformation in the Low Countries, 1500-1620, was released last year by Cambridge University Press. As its title suggests, the book encompasses a vast and tumultuous period which served to greatly shape the modern nations of Belgium and the Netherlands. It is a sweeping and extremely useful narrative. And we are lucky enough today to have Christine join us online from her home in the US to help us unpack it all. Hello, Christine.
1: Hello, gentlemen. It's nice to talk to you.
0: Wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. And could you just introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Sure. Uh, My name's Christine Coy. I am the Price Professor of European History at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the U.S. Uh, And I specialize, my area of expertise is the Reformation in the Low
0: Countries. You are American, but your name suggests you have Dutch roots.
1: Yes, my parents, uh, who were Dutch, emigrated to Canada in the 1950s. They were part of that big post-war migration. Uh, so I was born in Canada, uh, but when I was three years old, we emigrated again to the United States, and so I'm I'm sort of Canadian-American, one could say.
0: Okay, and has this uh, served to influencing your chosen line of study, or is it a pure coincidence?
1: No, no, it, it's quite influential. Um I grew up in a bilingual household, I grew up in a Dutch Calvinist household, and I think all of that uh, imprinted itself on me. And so when I was in grad school and the time came to select a dissertation topic, I thought since I already had the advantage of the language, I would explore um, various Reformation themes in in the Low Countries.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So that was growing up uh, with written and spoken bilingualism.
1: Well, more spoken more spoken than written. <laughs> the way it works out, and this is typical in immigrant families, is our parents would speak to us in Dutch and we would answer back in English. So when I first went to the Netherlands to do archival research for my book, I had to actually read the documents out loud under my breath so I understood what they were saying because my whole understanding of Dutch was through my ears.
0: <laughs> He's brilliant. <laughs> Your uh, recent book, let's talk about okay. it. Reformation in the Low Countries, 1500 to 1620. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, I said in the intro, a sweeping narrative, very useful as well, just to uh, let you know. Mm-hmm. It covers a, a century of religious and political turmoil. What made you decide to write this book, and why now?
1: Well, um, it's a book that has been needed to be written for a long time. There is a at least a half century's, even longer worth of scholarship on the Reformation of the Low Countries that really opened up starting after the Second World War when it kind of got shaken loose from its very Protestant origins. And since the 1940s, really, there's been just a huge amount of research done by scholars in Belgium, the Netherlands, in the UK, in North America, particularly on local aspects of the Reformation in the Low Countries because the local archives are so rich. And it's been great. We've learned a lot from these very localized studies, but um, I, I came to conclude about ten years ago that it was time for someone to try and provide a synthesis for all of these wonderful uh, studies. And so, and and I have colleagues who are not specialists in the in the low countries who kept asking me for recommendations of a good overview of the reformation in the low countries. And I said, well, there really isn't one. (laughs) There's a few articles here and there, but I decided after about 25 years in the business, I was at a point in my career where I could try to offer a, an overview.
0: Did you come and do more archival research on top of the localized stuff that had been happening? No,
1: this was not an archival book. Uh, this was a book that tried to synthesize the, the work of other historians. So, um, it's a narrative history of the re- of religious change in the Low Countries in the 16th century f- depending primarily or resting primarily on the work of lots and lots of other scholars, some of whom I've known personally, uh, also to a certain extent my own work, but this was not meant to be an archival book, this was an overview of what the state of the literature is and what we know about the Reformation based on that literature.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, narrative. You start your book uh, referencing the first burning of heretics in the Low Countries in Brussels in July 1523. Right. Can you tell us about those two men a bit and why you chose to begin your book with them?
1: Those two men, uh, um, uh, Johannes van Essen and, uh, and the, those two, they were two Augustinian monks, and they were burned. Uh, they were burned at the stake in the Grand Place of Brussels in the 1st of July, 1523, so just over 500 years ago, uh, because they held Lutheran beliefs. And I I chose that moment to begin the the narrative because, to me, it's very emblematic of all of the themes of the low country, the Reformation in the low countries, Uh, most especially what was distinctive about it, which was that uh, uh, religious dissidents endured a great deal of legal persecution um, because of their beliefs. And that started very early on. The Habsburgs already by 1520 are banning Lutheran books. And the the execution of Vossen von den Essen was meant to be a, a kind of deterrent. This was a very elaborately staged uh, ceremony that had high prelates and the Lord Mayors and Habsburg officials there to send a signal to anyone who was deemed a heretic that this was the consequence of dissent
0: that was only what uh, five years after the famous often uh, cited start of the reformation being luther's action Mm -hmm. but um it's not a very long period of time could you tell us a little bit about what the conditions of the low countries were just prior to the uh, beginning of the Reformation and in those very early years?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the early 1500s, the Low Countries, was um, a a very uh, teeming and rich place. It was economically quite powerful because it stood at the centre of all sorts of European trade routes. Uh, The city of Antwerp was the biggest in Northern Europe, and it was a huge uh, marketplace for not just goods from all over the world, uh, but also ideas. It was a printing center, uh, and so um, it was a hub of uh, of uh, all kinds of interaction. So the Low Countries is relatively highly uh, urbanized compared to the rest of Europe, uh, but it has a kind of double, double or split personality, because the Western Low Countries, places like Holland and Zeeland, Flanders, Brabant, that's the western urbanized maritime part of the Low Countries, but then you have an Eastern Low Countries that includes places like Groningen and uh, all the way down south to to, uh, Limburg and Luxembourg that were much more rural, much more agricultural, and we see a lot less evidence of uh, of what will eventually become dissenting ideas. There, so the Low Country stands at this corner of Europe, this metropolis, really, this very cosmopolitan place, relatively well off, relatively literate too. Uh, it's open to all sorts of ideas, and that makes it pretty ripe for eventually dissenting ideas as well.
0: And you would put a big emphasis on the divide between the urban and the rural areas. In the fomenting of those ideas
1: i think so the, the really the circulation the evidence that we have the circulation of those ideas are really in the west the western maritime netherlands um and to a far lesser degree uh than in what is now for example walloon belgium although places like Tournai uh in in southern belgium were hot at the time were hotbeds of religious descent so but in those rural areas we see less. The Reformation in the Low Countries was very much an urban event. I think.
0: So prior to the Reformation, how were they going about showing their devotion? And let's say we're in the urban areas, in the urban West. Mm-hmm. How would that have changed in those early years, uh, as these dissonant ideas begin to emerge?
1: Well, there was a very rich late medieval religious culture that existed in the in the Low Countries, just like in the rest of Europe. Um, there's a kind of myth among. Uh, about the Reformation, that it, it that it was a reaction to a decaying, dying, corrupt church. Whereas in fact, all the evidence suggests that that late medieval Catholicism was quite vital. People were avidly participating in it. Um, you know, lay people were going on processions. They were going to the sacraments. They were joining confraternities. They were, if they had means, they would endow buildings and chapels. I mean, all the evidence we have points to a very lively religious culture and that's important because really reformations or religious schisms don't happen when people are indifferent to religion they happen when people have a stake in it and so the the very fact that that these these uh, all these netherlanders in the very early 1500s are avidly enthusiastically partaking in the religious culture of their time uh just makes it that much uh, riper for questions that some will start to pose, certainly by by fifteen seventeen, fifteen eighteen, about whether that religious culture could be improved in some way, or could do better.
0: So we also often look at late medieval or early modern. As society having gone through this class division, we've got the three um, main classes of society, and one of them being the clergy. Mm-hmm. What was the role of the clergy in, in your book? You say that the levels of devotion and competence varied across the board, mm-hmm. and but there was constantly this thing that they were a privileged caste and yes. so open to suspicion. And uh, could, you, mm-hmm. could you just talk a little bit about that? How, how complaints against the clergy worked, what their roles were. Mm-hmm these sort of things?
1: Sure. Well, the clergy, you know, in in traditional late medieval society, the clergy are referred to as the first estate, those who pray. And their task in um, late medieval society uh, is indeed to pray for the souls of Christendom. Um, And they are the religious professionals. They have a special ordained status which means that they are the only ones allowed to celebrate the sacraments of the church, and the sacraments are the principal means by which God's grace is conveyed according to the church's teaching. So they have that special status and that special privilege to begin with. Now, with that ordained status came all kinds of legal privileges, Uh, For clergy as well. They were often exempt from paying certain kinds of taxes. Uh, There were certain monasteries that had rights and privileges to, for example, brew beer. Uh, The clergy, if they they were accused of crimes, uh, would be tried in their own church courts rather than in the the civic courts of, of a secular society. So they are a privileged group, but they're also a very necessary group for the whole system to work. Um, and I think it was the the you know the privilege of the clergy um, is one of the things that ultimately, at least the Protestants start to attack uh, that that this that this privilege uh, was in fact a an obstacle or was becoming an obstacle, at least in the minds of some very serious Christians, to their devotion to God. So. And, and and I wouldn't say that the low con- this was true all over Europe. I mean, it wasn't just the low countries. There was always a certain degree of sort of social resentment about the clergy as this distinct caste of people. On the other hand, you know, the whole religious show couldn't go on without them. Uh, and so they are both necessary and resented uh, at the same time.
0: And it, does that, sorry, I, I believe you say that two-thirds of the Original evangelicals or the the early evangelicals uh, were part of the clergy. Mm,
1: that is correct. That's the interesting thing. The very earliest evangelicals who emerge in the Low Countries, um, actually not not just not just the Low Countries, but the very earliest ones are clergy. They are um, you know monks like the two men burned to death in Brussels. The, uh, Martin Luther was a monk. Uh, in other words, it was Catholic clergy who very much got this show rolling because these were the religious professionals who, or at least some of them, took it very seriously. And um, they, at least in the 1520s, a lot of them were in the forefront of questioning how the church was doing what it was doing. Um, And not necessarily in the sense of wanting to break away or, or reject, but just very fundamental questions about the church's practices, but and those pr- those questions about practice started also to bleed into questions about belief, and what the church taught. So yes, you're right. The the clergy were very much at the forefront of the very early Reformation.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. So how about uh, relations between clergy and the uh, the third car the third class the uh, the commoners, <laughs> the people? And hey, mm-hmm. we're, we're, let's put ourselves in an urban setting, as as okay. you've uh, outlined how how would that relationship have looked uh, obviously different in different places but we're really interested in um how what kind of complaints there were against the clergy mm-hmm. and uh how people would have gone about filing these complaints
1: <laughs> well it's not like there was like a you know an ombudsman who could take their take their uh their um uh, objections um Some of the the ways that people like ordinary urban folk in the low countries might take out their resentment or might um, express their criticism, a very common way was um, just um, a kind of cultural mockery of clergy and monks. I mean, the number of jokes and plays and um, uh, poems written about monks and priests who did not live up to their vows uh, was quite common. The chambers of rhetoric, for example, in in the Flemish and Brabant cities, routinely put on plays that just made fun of the clergy. But making fun of the clergy was something everybody did. Right? It was it was a commonplace. What um what some of these early evangelicals did was take it a step further and say, well, it it's it's less about the corruption of the clergy or the failings, you know, the, the moral failings of the clergy, and much more about whether the whole institution is a system which the clergy serve and direct, or whether that whole system needed fundamental questioning and reshaping. So.
0: Sorry. What was it about the Low Countries at that time that allowed this to catch fire as it did?
1: Well, that's a good question. And You know, in, in the Reformation only succeeds ultimately where, where political authorities support it. And I think in the case of the Low Countries, um, there was a lot of sympathy among the powers that be, that is, urban magistrates, you know, mayors and aldermen, also, to a certain extent, local nobles, so the two political elites of of Netherlandish society, there was a certain degree of sympathy for the criticisms leveled against the church. Uh, and um that sympathy got manifested early on. I mean, it, it, and the Antwerp magistrates, for example, tended to just put a take take a blind eye to whatever kinds of descending groups were meeting in their city, and there were even a few magistrates who who actively supported it so, in the case of the Low Countries, there was already this kind of pre-built-in sympathy towards the, the notion of reform, that, that the church could do better. Not necessarily sympathy for the notion of rebellion or dissent, but the problem is, is by the time we get to the 1530s, reform or the desire for re- reform is, is increasingly associated, at least in, in the minds of Catholic authorities, with rebellion and heresy. So I, th- I think the Low Countries is very fertile ground to begin with, culturally, for these reforming ideas.
0: Yeah, and to uh, become, as as you uh, explained, what German historians were calling a Wildwuchs.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's, that's a concept uh, uh, first developed by uh, several, a couple of German historians. This Wildwuchs is a German phrase for a sort of wild growth. And uh, what we see happening in the 1520s and then in the 1530s mostly in the Holy Roman Empire and Switzerland, but also to a certain extent in the Low Countries, is this rather explosive um, growth uh, and and circulation of what were becoming increasingly radical dissenting ideas. Uh, Not just, oh, you know, the clergy are failing, or not just criticisms of clerical behavior, but now people like Luther people like um, uh, Melchior Hoffman, the 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 uh, the Anabaptist leader are actively arguing that no, there has to be this this much deeper change that that the church has to be reformed, reshaped um, in some very fundamental ways, right. And so in, in the Low Countries by the 1530s, for example, you have a very um, a very um, radical, religious reform movement in the the form of the Melchiorites, the the followers of Melchior Hoffman, who have come to believe, like a lot of other people, that sometime in the 1530s, the world was going to end, that that the apocalypse was coming, that that a new Jerusalem had to be founded. Luther himself has shared similarly apocalyptic ideas, uh, certainly in the latter decades of his life. So it was this very charged time where all sorts of ideas are brooded about about what exactly it means to be a christian Um, and people are listening to preachers they're listening to prophets and then authorities in turn are reacting to what they see as very dangerous dissent Um, but you get this growth uh, fueled partly by the printing press but also by a lot of itinerant preachers who all come to believe that well something's going to happen and we need to we need to bring about a fundamental reformation of of not just the church, but now society as well.
0: So that uh, apocalyptic belief coupled with the clergy being exposed a little bit and uh, Mm -hmm. ordinary people able to say that, you know, I am a priest... Is is that what you're talking about? That was happening.
1: Yeah. Well, there there's kind. Of, I cert, I th- certainly think in the case of Luther and and these radicals by the 1520s and 30s, there's a a rebellion against the first estate. That is um, a, re- a rebellion against what was seen as the 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 too great authority of the clergy. That 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 this and and the criticism was what that was that this privileged caste of people. Is now standing between Christians and God, Christian souls and God, rather than being the conduit the, uh, to between or the the intermediary between uh, God and and Christians that the church taught they were. Right. So, so this yeah this attack on the clergy is in some ways the early Reformation can be seen as a kind of rebellion against the first estate and its power. So, I mean, that's so. Then you have phrases like the priesthood of all believers, right? And you have uh, Anabaptist movements that do away with clergy entirely and effectively say everybody is a prophet, or at least every man is a prophet.
0: Well, let's let's talk about the Anabaptists. Uh, okay, well, course, they're a
1: wild and woolly bunch. Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> well, you, you get to that period and you talk about rebellion, and so could you could you just explain a little bit? Um, Briefly, who the Anabaptists were uh, and what became of them during this period.
1: Sure. Well, Anabaptism is an, a, an umbrella term to use, used to describe a category of religious dissenter that really emerges in the mid-1520s and into the 1530s, who um don't Most of them, they, they don't think Luther or Zwingli and Zurich have gone far enough in their call of reforms. These are people who are characterized by a fairly extreme biblicism. Uh, that is, they take the Bible very seriously, but also in many cases very literally. So, for example, uh, a very common belief among the different Anabaptist groups was that uh, a, a person must be baptized as a Christian as an adult because nowhere in the Bible is a child baptized. Right, Infant baptism was a very common practice from the early church onwards. Um, And for these guys to go around saying, well, no, you have to be be baptized as a believer rather than as an unknowing infant, um, that rattled a lot of cages. So that was part of it. But again, there's a sort of extreme diversity among these groups. A lot of them believe that, for example, that they, uh, because Jesus says at one point in the Gospel of Matthew, don't swear by anything on heaven or in earth that they should not take oaths uh, becomes one of their practices, which is also very radical in a society, the 16th century that was very dependent on oath taking uh, for its kind of social uh, and legal um, um, traffic. So there, and then, um, you know, things like um, a lot of them were pacifists, not all of them, uh, but some of them were pacifists. Uh, A lot of them believe that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, Christians should not hold any kind of public office, right? Uh, so they were very radical in their beliefs. Again, they did away with clergy. They did away with liturgy. Um, they preached from the Bible. They they had prophets that um, that they they followed, um, and they preached a kind of radical equality among Christian souls. That a lot most contemporaries found quite unsettling, including the more mainstream Protestant uh, uh, reformers, uh, as well of course, uh, as the Catholic authorities. Uh,
0: you make it very clear from early on that we um we shouldn't ever look at this as unified groups doing any one thing. And yet we talk about the Anabaptists like like this. They gained a confessional identity over time. Or would you say that they always remained quite yeah, disparate?
1: They they do eventually because you know in the fifteen in the in fifteen thirty four and thirty five uh, a, a Melchiorite group t- take over the city of Munster in 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 the eastern what's what's now western Germany uh, then part of the Holy Roman Empire and um, they tried to create the, a lot of the leaders of that group were Dutch and try they tried to create a theocracy out of Munster the famous Anabaptist kingdom. Uh, that uh, well was eventually conquered by a combination of actually Catholic and Lutheran troops, um, and Munster was routinely held up by all sides, all non-Anabaptist sides, as well. This is these are the wages of heresy. This is what happens when you know you get this extreme, radical, communist, polygamist, All the all the bad things uh, happen in Munster. So what happens in the second half of the the 1530s and into the 1540s after Münster is that the various Anabaptist movements, and you're right, there's a great diversity among them, they start to go underground. They get quieter. A lot of them lose their militancy. um, They lose a lot of their social agenda in some ways as well. And the best example of that evolution is a person like Menno Simons, who um, was uh, uh, an Anabaptist leader, who in the 1540s proposed a kind of a- a- a Anabaptism often referred to as Menetite- Menetitism or um, uh, the uh, uh, uh stream that argued for, rather than this kind of aggressive stance in the world, true Christian believers should take a more passive self-segregating role. And so Menno Simons and the Mennonites and the Dopskazinda, but certainly by the 1540s and 1550s and 1560s, um, develop a, a kind of character, a kind of confessional character that um, is is more quietist, um, is not interested in social revolution, but also tries to segregate believers from uh, from. Uh, what they see as an excessively sinful
0: world material Um, material right and
1: and they are heavily persecuted by the Habsburg authorities and so they end up creating a a martyrological tradition for themselves uh that uh um um reinforces their sense of identity they come up with their own bible translation as well in other words they start doing things that start to separate them you know that that create boundaries between them and other types of christians right and that's what's happening in in, in the second half of the 16th century is this kind of overall um, um effort to draw more boundaries between different groups of believers okay
0: okay and in early days, it seems that the Anabaptist movement was very concentrated on this sort of middle artisanal class of people in the cities. Did that remain the case or did it change as well?
1: Um, no, I th- well, you know, it's, it's interesting because later Mennonitism, if you go into the, for example, into the period of the Dutch Republic, uh, Mennonites were often quite well-to-do people. Uh, it seems to have started with an appeal to sort of artisanal classes, laboring classes, um, you know, the working urban classes. Um, but over time, Mennonitism seems to have spread its reach uh, in, in sort of all social groups.
0: Because sure. while the monster um, uprising was happening, there were, of course, other uprisings in the Low Countries, in different cities.
1: Right, right, Yeah. It, you have Mennonites in Amsterdam running amok. Um, there's, there's a rebellion in Oldenzaal.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, and I'm really curious how we should, uh, if we can imagine this, how we should, if it's the thousands of people that I've seen, some projections or some estimates, there were there were literally thousands of uh, Anabaptists, Mennonite or not yet Mennonites, uh, Anabaptists in different towns in, in Dutch cities discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how should we look at that? Should we look at it as rebellion or, again, as this impassioned Uh, belief in in the uh the religion the religious side of it
1: you know i think it's both and that is yes it's very fiery passionate faith but it tends to be coupled with a belief that it's not just enough to reform the inner person or the reform the individual sinner but the whole thing has to be um turned upside down effectively Again, that that revolutionary fervor dies down after Munster uh, is uh, happens, but at least in the, the or, you know between fifteen thirty and say fifteen forty, um, there is a very strong kind of radicalism within uh, within the Melchiorite, hoffmanite um, uh, Anabaptism.
0: Let's start talking about the other threads. You do identify three threads in this Reformation mm-hmm. in the Low Countries, one being the Anabaptists, which we've, we've touched upon, uh, and then you've got the Reformed Protestants and the Catholics. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Reformed, because often people talk about Protestants, they're thinking of Lutherans or they think just of mm-hmm. Luther, but Reformed Protestants uh, is a different tract. Could you tell us the key differences uh, between the two sure. in, in doctrine and otherwise?
1: Right well reform protestantism is is arose out of Switzerland first with Huldrych uh, Zwingli in Zurich around 1520 25 or so um and then a uh, and, and also it also included uh, figures like Martin Bucer in Strasbourg and then a generation later of course it gets most famously associated with John Calvin uh the French uh, uh, reformer who winds up uh, in Geneva and the, in some ways, the, the the differences between Lutheran and Reformed Protestantisms are not particularly vast. Um, but there was one very strong dis, uh, doctrinal sticking point was, and that was how to interpret the Eucharist, that is, the sacrament of the Mass, um, where Luther uh, and the Lutherans retained, in some ways, the some Catholics el- Catholic elements about the whether Christ. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ were actually present, uh, corporeally present, in the elements of the mass, that is, the bread and the wine. Um, and uh, Luther, being the good Catholic that he was, um, or at least started as, um, wanted to retain that sense of what was called the real presence in his understanding of how how the Eucharist, or what became known as the Lord's Supper, uh, was celebrated. whereas um, Zwingli and Calvin and the Reformed tradition saw in the the Eucharist uh, a much more symbolic moment, that that, no, Christ is not corporeally present when the Eucharist is celebrated, but he may well be spiritually present. Uh, So, um, And that's the big doctrinal difference. There are also differences in in sort of style and liturgy. Um, The Reformed tradition tends to be Uh, much more sober in its liturgy. Uh, They get rid of a lot of imagery in churches, whereas Luther had little difficulty, didn't mind images in churches because he thought they were didactic and and educative. Um, So in a sense, what's happening is the Reformed tradition goes a little further um, in in streamlining, in changing the physical ways in which Christians worshipped. Also, I would say the Reformed tradition centers preaching and, and you know, sermons and the preaching of, of uh, the Bible much more centrally in its liturgy than, than the Lutherans did originally. So it's there are differences of degree, I would say. And, and I think, you know, the, and, and again, so one particular sticking point on theology, which is how do we understand the Eucharist? Yeah. Uh, as well which
0: we we won't go into too deeply. No. Either, so. Let's not. <laughs> let's, it's let's it's not.
1: complicated. It's interesting to me that the 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 present day Protestant church uh, uh in the Netherlands the PKN is actually among other things a fusion of of uh, reformed and lutheran. It's with it, clearly those differences have been resolved a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thankfully. From the 1510s, say, through to the 1540s, uh, there's been a lot of changes and this spread We've had Anabaptists and the spread of Reformed ideas, and a are still a very Catholic uh, Habsburg state. Um, you mentioned how the first burning of the heretics in 23 had been a statement; it was it was them making a real statement. How had their response changed between the 1520s and the 1540s? And if we were an everyday regular person in, say, Antwerp, or i even venture a little bit further north, how would we have experienced that?
1: Well, um, the you know certainly by the middle of the sixteenth century, the, the the policy of the Habsburgs, first Charles V, and then his successor Philip II, is to take a very hard line against heresy. They, these are loyal Catholic kings; they are not interested in heresy. And the low countries are their patrimonial land, so they have a legal free hand to um, prosecute what they saw see as very dangerous ideas. Um, so the, the the prosecutions continue. It's the and this legal uh, assault sometimes gets um, labeled the Inquisition, although technically it's not quite an Inquisition, but it 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 certainly has uh, similarities and. Um, The local cooperation with that inquisition, which was run by both the church and the Habsburg authorities, um, the the local cooperation uh, varied from place to place. But if you were, say, an ordinary person in Flanders, um, um, you could, for example, hear about uh, your neighbors being arrested because they had illicit books. You could hear about um, people forced to flee. Uh, because they wanted to escape what they f- were uh, uh what they were what they feared was judicial uh, uh suppression um and then occasionally not not all, every day or all the time uh you would see people publicly either executed or publicly recanting their their Protestant uh, or their dissenting beliefs um if you were a magistrate in that in a in a city, um you had to watch while your citizens, who technically had the right to be tried only in uh their own courts, being um tried and 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 accused and and sometimes um um killed by what was a fairly new judicial apparatus that that local people had no control over. So it's the that it in The persecution worked for about, uh, you know, between the late 1540s and early 1550s. It seemed to work fairly well to suppress, for example, the various Anabaptist movements, at least quiet them down. But then by the late 1550s, as the Reformed movement really takes up steam in the Low Countries, it seems as though the judicial, this legal prosecution is actually working backwards. And creating um, even more resolve, partly because a you know the Pro- there's a Protestant mart- martyrological tradition that develops out of it, but also because ordinary citizens who otherwise had no no sympathy for these these heretics are not appreciating what they see as a kind of um, Habsburg intrusion into what they understood to be their local liberties and privileges. So in the long term, uh, you know, the 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 Habsburg prosecution of heresy initially works fairly well, but in the long term, certainly by the 1560s, it is so unpopular that there is political opposition to the Habsburgs among the nobility, among the magistrates of big cities that actually has nothing to do with Protestantism, uh, but simply a, a belief that the traditional privileges and liberties of citizens and of local elites are being bypassed and ignored by this very um, um, concerted effort to suppress heresy.
0: Yeah, well, which is not a pattern uncommon to Low Countries' history. No.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Low Countries, it's this weird conglomeration of a bunch of different sovereignties that are technically under the, the overlordship of the Habsburgs, but what the Habsburgs learn, and just like their Burgundian predecessors did, was that this was a very hard place to rule. Um, it was very fractious the authority is decentralized uh that there are multiple languages and ethnicities um there's not a lot to unite the region um you know culturally or, or linguistically but it's it's this accidental collection of territories in the, in the the Delta of the Rhine and um or the Delta of the big rivers and um, the Habsburgs you know, their goal is to ex- uh, uh, gain enough control over these territories to be able to, for example, to extract money to pay for their various wars in other parts of the world. Um, and it's an ongoing project. It started with their Burgundian predecessors already in the 14th century, uh, but it's very haphazard. Um, and, you know, it the, the Charles V tries very hard to build up state apparatus like a council of finance and a privy council and all the rest um but it 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 doesn't work terribly well it, it the habsburgs are a composite state um that re- kind of reached their height of success in um um you know in the mid by the, say the 1540s and then it starts to disintegrate after that
0: well uh let's talk a little bit about the catholic church during all this because okay. uh, uh, we know. Well, you've gone into a bit how the Habsburgs reacted. What changes started to take place with the Catholic Church in that first four decades, three or four decades mm-hmm. of the Reformation?
1: Right. Well, um, you know, I often uh, people ask. You know, I got some uh, some questioning when I when this book came out. Why are you talking about Catholics? I said, Well, Reformation. You know, religious change is something that affects the catholic church too you know the overwhelming majority of netherlanders and europeans for that matter stay with the catholic church right but uh, and so we have to consider them and and the catholic church you have to understand you know since its beginnings you know has had a long tradition throughout the middle ages of reforming itself right sometimes in some periods more successfully than others I think what happens in certainly in the church in the Low Countries in the in the middle of the 16th century is that they realize just how much uh, there is a kind of popular sentiment, popular support for religious change, and so the Catholic Church in the Low Countries, the prelacy, the the, the bishops, um, in in cooperation with the Habsburg government, try to introduce meaningful reform and change certainly by the late 1550s, the 1560s, they, they what the Catholic Church sees in the Reformation is a failure of the clergy. That is, um, that somehow the priesthood, their priesthood, had failed to tend to the souls of Christians and therefore many Christians, not all of them, strayed away. And so uh, the whole uh, Catholic Reformation process, the whole impetus behind Catholic reform, like the Council of Trent, for example, is to try and make pastoral care better. So you get things like they set up seminaries, right? You know, there, there was it was not necessary for a priest to go to seminary before the Reformation. But with the Reformation, bishops are required to set up seminaries in their diocese for the proper training of priests. Um, new religious orders are introduced in the Low Countries, like most, especially the the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, which first shows up in Leuven uh, in the 1540s. And the whole point, and then and then in the in the particularly in the in the Netherlandish case in 1559, there was a reorganization of the the bishoprics of the Low Countries, of the diocesan uh, organization or structure of the Low Countries that is designed at least in part to introduce these changes and these improvements in the church, but also it's a Habsburg project to try and um, increase their power over the church and their cooperation with the church. So it's not like the Catholic church is standing idle um, and, and watching all this happen. They are working very hard in, in, in various institutional ways to, to, um, to bring about the reform of the church. But, you know, the, the problem for their from their point of view is that some folks have, you know, some people have already been lost to what they understand to be heresy. Mm. Uh, but the other challenge is to, you know, make sure that those who are re- loyal and remain will, will continue to do so. I mean, it's a very new problem in some ways uh, for the Catholic church. I mean, it's dealt with heresy before, but never quite with such successful heresy, at least not in a long time.
0: That uh, then brings us to the year 1566, the ah, uh, so-called wonder year. Should we talk about yes. it? Well, tell us what happened in 1566 and how did it spark what became military conflict?
1: In April of 1566, uh, the very heavy-handedness of the Inquisition of the legal prosecution of dissenters prompts or sp- causes some some members of the they're the landish gentry, um, not the top nobles, but the sort of second-rank ones, to issue a, issue a formal protest to Margaret of Parma, who is the governor general of the Low Countries, effectively the regent for um, uh, her half-brother, Philip II. And uh, those nobles, uh, some of whom are Protestant, but some of whom are not, um, are presenting a petition, a basically a protest, saying this Inquisition, as they called it, is destroying the country it's alienating the people it's causing um disruption and it it needs to needs to come to an end so this particular issue uh, aspect of of habsburg religious policy is what, what sparks um the whole the whole thing so margaret of parma effectively suspends some of the legal prosecution and allows or at least maybe not allow not not actively allow, but allow certainly allows um, Protestant groups to start meeting and worshiping more openly. And the Reform Movement, which by 1566 is certainly the most dynamic of all of uh, the dissenting movements in the Low Countries, takes that opportunity and runs with it. They um, they um, demand in various localities the right to worship openly. In some cases, in some cities, for example, in Flanders, they uh, ask for a building where they can start to worship. In other words, there's fairly open worship going on. And some of that worship is also happening out in the countryside, uh, in outside of city gates, where you have these mass hedge preachings where some reform uh, uh, pastor preaches to 5,000 people at a time, you know, outside the gates of Antwerp. Um, You start to see more and more reformed Netherlanders become very emboldened by what they see as a kind of freeing of of, uh, the legal circumstances to start worshiping pretty openly. And that, and, and Margaret Harp is not happy about this, and certainly neither is Philip II. But you know, it's it's that's the situation on the ground. And then it gets exaggerated or exacerbated in August of 1566, when a group of um, of Reformed Protestants attack a chapel outside the the village of Steenvoorde in far western Flanders, and they attack. The religious images in the chapel—they smash the altar to bits. They, 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 they engage in a, a fair amount of de- uh, destruction, and there's a chain reaction. And for about the next two months, this iconoclastic fury—what the Dutch refer, what's in Dutch called the Beeldenstorm, storm—spreads um, through virtually the whole Low Countries, right? from from West Flanders up to Groningen. Uh, from Maastricht to Amsterdam. And it's this wave of violence um, against churches. Not so much violence against clergy, which is interesting, but violence against images in churches, whether those were altarpieces or statuary or elaborate candelabras. Now, it varied from place to place. In some places, it was clearly a kind of organized thing. In other places, it was spontaneous. Uh, In some places, it happened with the connivance of local authorities or local militias, but in other cases, it didn't. And then there are whole regions that avoid it entirely, like uh, Brussels never has a a, uh, destruction of images, nor does Leuven. So it varied from place to place, but it was deeply shocking to contemporaries because it was this attack on the churches, right? Um, You know, people are throwing their shoes at statues of saints and they're, they're, uh, they're drinking the sacramental wine. I mean, it, there's mockery and desecration everywhere. It's it's really deeply shocking to contemporaries. And Margaret of Parma, who's supposed to be in charge, uh, is under tremendous pressure from uh, her half brother Philip II back in Spain to you know put a lid on it. So so the 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 iconoclastic fury ends up having the effect of forcing the Habsburgs to once again take a very heavy hand towards um, uh, religious dissent. I mean, to the extent of using armed force. Uh, and so that by 1567, for example, within half a year of the of the, the iconoclastic fury of the wonder year, um, our Margaret of Parma is sending troops to places like Valenciennes and Tournai and uh, Antwerp and uh, forcing, trying to suppress the rebellion. And that's when war breaks out.
0: And how did that war then, which uh, proceeded obviously for the next eight decades, but uh, mm-hmm. how did that uh, go hand in hand with reformed Protestantism in those early days, and then eventually?
1: Well, initially, um, the the political leadership, that is, the the nobles who who led the political opposition to the Habsburgs, um, they enter into an alliance with the reformed or, or the the religious opposition, shall we say. Both both political and religious opponents uh, starting in 1567 have to flee into exile, mostly to the Holy Roman Empire, because there's a new regime, the Duke of Alba, and the Duke of Alba wants everybody's head who is a rebel. So now suddenly in exile, these political opponents have to break bread with and deal with religious opponents and you know, not all the political opponents are, are Protestants. That so they tend to see these Calvinists as pretty wild-eyed revolutionaries. Um, but they have to make common cause with each other because that's about the only way they think that they can um, that they can muster any sort of opposition. And at the head of all of this, trying to orchestrate it all, is poor William of Orange, who. Um, is you know was raised a lutheran and then became a catholic so he could become the leading noble of the low countries and um he you know his own personal religious convictions are fairly lukewarm and open minded but here he is trying to negotiate and navigate uh what was a really contentious uh coalition of opponents to the to the uh, to the Habsburg regime, but they do make common cause with each other. And then in 1572, more or less accidentally, uh, some rebel troops gain a toehold in Holland uh, and then Zeeland, and then suddenly, well, not suddenly, but when when rebels take over parts of the country, then uh reformed protestants follow them and start instituting religious change so it's it's a tangled relationship because the the political opposition is made up of both protestants and catholics whereas the religious opposition is f- f- virulently anti-catholic um, and wants to see not just simply get let's get rid of the habsburgs or let's you know get rid of the habsburg yoke but let's get rid of the catholic church as well Right. and that that makes for a very uneasy coalition that eventually by the 50 late 1570s breaks down
0: yeah just cannot sustain that um well especially with yeah. with William William the silent having like you said raised Lutheran converted Catholicism mm-hmm. also uh, well lukewarm I think is how you put his uh yeah. his religious uh, beliefs how, how did that and his sense of a freedom of conscience how did that go into? shaping these early stages of the netherlandish state uh becoming multi-confessional which which it ultimately did
1: well i i wouldn't describe that to william of orange more specifically but i think instead what certainly by the time we get to the an independent dutch republic in the 1580s there is a um there is a widespread kind of assumption about freedom of conscience. And, and to a certain extent, yes, William of Orange inspired it because he tried very hard to broker various religious pieces uh, in the, the, the regions that he conquered so that Protestants and Catholics could worship side by side. And those don't work because the Protestants absolutely insist on taking over all the mm. all the public religious space. Um, but I think part of one of the reasons why we have a kind of multi-confessional society where freedom of conscience is actually more or less enshrined in law in the Dutch Republic is precisely because of the experiences of the 16th century with persecution, uh, with war. Um, um, you know, the, the the men who end up ruling the Dutch Republic who are mostly urban, you know, city magistrates in Holland they conclude that that coercion that forcing coer- religious coercion is just simply not worth the price that it you know it's all very nice to have unity and harmony and everybody believing the same thing but to get to that point by now by the 1580s um then you know that's trying to put the genie back in the bottle and it's not going to work and so they 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 opt instead to sort of manage religious coexistence rather than try to undo it
0: So by the time we get to the 1580s, uh, we have uh, different confessionals in uh, across the low countries, but um, mm-hmm. Protestants and rebels are starting to make a, a bit more of an impact. And the Spanish, of course, uh, reconquer parts mm-hmm. of the, the southern low countries in the 1580s. Right. Can you talk about how this changed the demographics and the, the structure of things a little bit?
1: Sure, so in the 1580s, the the Habsburg armies, um, led mostly by uh, Alexander Farnese, who was the son of Margaret of Parma, um, he uh, is successfully able in the 1580s to take back pretty large chunks of the Low Countries that had fallen under rebel hands, particularly most of Flanders and most of Brabant, which were the two key core provinces of the Low Countries. Uh,
0: Just to interrupt, can you? How much of the Low Countries had fallen into Protestant hands up until that point?
1: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. The um, so boy, by the you know the dates are a little a little variable, but um, let's say roughly what's uh, you know from Groningen southwestward to Flanders and Brabant, most of those provinces. So, sort of the the what would you call it? The the, the northwestern half of the Low Countries had come under some degree of rebel control. Right? That was still pretty shaky and wobbly, but you know that wasn't going to stop the, the Protestants from trying to introduce Reformation. What happens in the 1580s is Alexander Farnese uh, successfully re- leads the reconquest of Brabant and Flanders. Uh, that, that's really his big achievement. So, And thereby, in the long term, creating what becomes known as the Kingdom of Belgium.
0: Yeah, and so that's the uh, that's the divide that we still live with today. And and the yeah. the immediate effects of that and the long-term effects, could you go into a little bit?
1: Well, the immediate effect was, uh, you know, so in 1585, Farnese reconquers Antwerp, which had been in rebel hands, and this kind of capstones a triumphant uh, Reconquista by the Habsburgs. And um, there are lots of Protestants still living in Flanders and Brabant um, when when it goes back under Habsburg control. And ultimately what Farnese and the Habsburg government tells these people is either you convert to Catholicism or you leave. And about 150,000 people uh, opt to leave. That is, they migrate from the southern Netherlands, mostly to the north to the what's what will become the Dutch Republic. Some of them go to England, some of them go to the Holy Roman Empire. Most of them are Protestants, but not necessarily all. A lot of them are economic migrants who just want to get away from the war uh, as well. But there's this massive shift of population and a lot of those people took you know their capital, their talent, their labor with them. And they are fully installed in the cities of the Dutch Republic, especially in Holland and Zeeland and Utrecht, uh, where they contribute to this, this enormous economic flowering that, of course, um, uh, the, the Dutch Republic will enjoy uh, in the 17th century. So it's a big change. But also the more obvious. and there'll be you know, more decades worth of fighting, but ultimately the frontier is pretty well established. And so, you know, the the, the sort of long, big, long term result is that there are two states. Right? There is the Habsburg or, or Archducal Netherlands in the south, um, and there is this new state, the Dutch Republic. And that's novel about the Reformation in the Low Countries. Nowhere else does it change the political map of Europe. Right? It creates a, an entirely new country.
0: So the South stays under the Habsburg control and remains Catholic.
1: Um, or it's made, it's remade Catholic. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's, yeah.
0: And, and uh, despite the over 100,000 people who leave, were there people who remained behind? And I think the term they use is Nicodemism. So could you explain that a little bit and if there were people that stayed?
1: Yeah. There were, yeah, there were Protestants who opted to stay in the Southern Netherlands, um, even though this was a Catholic confessional regime. And even though they were often persecuted, they're not very numerous, but, but we find evidence of them, um, mostly in the cities, uh, and mostly in Flanders and Brabant, although not exclusively. There's a few in the, in the French speaking South as well, but they are a small group. And um, they, they are, to some extent, a persecuted minority, and they, they you know, they, they kind of retreat into their own communities, uh, so, so that one could arguably say, well, the Southern Netherlands really is a, a very successfully re-Catholicized country. I mean, there, there are, you know, handfuls of Protestants here and there, but they, they are not a big group. Um, uh, in some ways, Reformation, Catholic Reformation, really succeeds in the South,
0: and how did that take place? The the Catholic uh, Reformation. What was the process of that in the South? Um, what, what did it look like?
1: Well, it was a it was a combination of efforts by ordinary lay Catholics, the Church, the Catholic Church, uh, but also the Habsburg government, the Archdukes Albert and Isabella, who ruled the Low Countries, uh, the the who ruled the Southern Netherlands um, on behalf of the uh, Philip III, Um, They, the three of them worked in concert, these three different groups worked in concert with each other to try and re-Catholicize the Low Countries. And part of it, you know, the motivation for that partly is, a big chunk of it is just people wanted to get back to normal lives. Right, The 1570s and 1580s, it had been nothing but warfare, and most of that fighting was in Flanders and Brabant. And so part of it is just a desire among ordinary people to say okay we've had enough we've had enough conflict we are loyal to the church and so we are going to uh we are going to build the, build the church back but this this required a lot of work because buildings are destroyed churches are destroyed monasteries are destroyed so the church has to and, and the Habsburg government have to work together to try and subsidize the rebuilding of parishes uh, they introduce new religious orders. the Jesuits are there, the Capuchins um, there in other words, there's this this effort that's very collective. It's not just simply the Habsburgs imposing this from above. this ordinary lay Catholics are saying let us restore our country, let us restore the church, let us restore our spiritual fabric. And so it it was partly it was just sheer physical construction um it's very uh, conscientious bishops trying to find the right people to become clergy it's uh, religious orders like the Jesuits who are actively encouraging local lay Catholics to express their devotion right in other words it's kind of an effort to go back to that early 16th century Catholicism that had been so vibrant and so lively but now in slightly newer bottles shall we say of, of Where okay, we've learned the lesson that if we don't do this right, what we get is rebellion. Right, so it's 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 a process that everybody really in the South is involved in.
0: Well, and it seems to have been quite effective. Mm. So could you then, um, because we're going to look at the North in a second, but uh, that was very disparate, lots of different groups. We're going to talk about that. They had the background of the unified church and empire in this effort in the South. Did that help that they could actually? get everyone on the same page so to
1: speak. sure sure oh yeah because the 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 leadership of the Southern Netherlands this Archducal government the Habsburg government deliberately embarked on a, patho- on, a on a policy of re catholization right in other words this is, they choose for the Catholic confession right and so the Southern or Archducal Netherlands can be seen as as a a confessional state where uh, political authorities and church authorities work very closely with each other, to make sure that there's more or less spiritual uniformity, right? So, yeah, no, this is deliberate policy. But again, also with the pretty enthusiastic participation of normal people on the ground, too, right? It's, you know, people want an end to war. Um, and, and you know, and, and again, most Netherlanders are, you know, they don't become heretics. <laughs> you know, they don't become Protestants. And you know, it's 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 almost as if the silent majority gets to work in the southern Netherlands and says, "Okay, let's let's you know re-Catholicize and re-establish our spiritual identity."
0: In the north, we have schisms still happening. Uh, the uh, mm-hmm. the Reformed Church is the only public church. Right. Uh, there is a difference in different villages and towns. Uh, as to how much of other confessions are being allowed by the different right. magistrates. But in the public church, uh, there is a big schism, the Arminius-Gumarus debate. Yep. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please, and how it was resolved?
1: Sure. Well, it it, it breaks out officially in 1609 when um, Arminius, who was a theology professor at Leiden, uh Produced a, a, a theological tract that argued for a greater role of, for good works in the process of salvation, uh, and a greater role than than most of his colleagues and the theology faculty were comfortable with, especially uh, Gomarus. And so you get this this theological um, schism or this theological conflict uh, in the University of Leiden. It starts out as this kind of ivory tower um, um, debate. But it very quickly spills into wider social and political debates about how to prosecute the war against the Habsburgs. Um, and um, various politicians get involved, including Johann von Olden Barneveld, who supports the Armenians, and the Stadtholder Maurice of Nassau, who supports uh, the Gomarists. And the the religious, uh, the theological conflict basically bleeds into a big political and social debate about, you know, how how this war should be prosecuted, and there are pamphlets uh, hurled right and left, Uh, there are riots, Uh, people get very, very head up on this, Um, and the end result is that um, uh, Maurice of Nassau uh, and the Gomarists, or the the sort of people who styled themselves as orthodox uh, Calvinists, um, take over the public church and also take over the government of the Dutch Republic and expel these dissenters. And it's it's it makes for, you know, this terrible moment in, in the very early history of the Dutch Republic where they are fighting each other over what the future course of the country should be. Um, and it has an effect on, a ripple effect on all the non-reformed uh, uh citizens of the dutch republic who are very happy to see those protestants you know fight each other and um uh, and for them it just simply confirms their suspicions all along that these these people you know just don't know what they're doing or at least are wrong so
0: so how does it uh come to a head if you know what mommy's saying
1: um, well, it it's probably in 1617 and 1618. By then, um, the the real focus of the tension is between Olden Barneveld and Maurice of Nassau. Um, and uh, Olden Barneveld is basically the head, the, you might say the prime minister of, of Holland. He's the, the 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 lands advocate. And he tries very hard to put together a coalition of Holland uh, politicians that will be able to resist Maurice's um, efforts to gain more power. But the trouble is Holland was was only one of six provinces that made up the Dutch Republic and the political sentiment in nearly all the other provinces was was uh for the gomarists and resented the dominance of Holland. so in the end, olden Barneval he tries to like negotiate and broker uh uh a, a, a an end to the to the the conflict, but ultimately what ends up happening is Maurice of Nassau just takes troops and uh and Takes over the cities of Holland, um, gets gets rid of Olden Barnabelt. He's eventually executed. Purges the government of Holland of any Armenians, and then the the Dutch Reformed Church has a big synod in in sixteen eighteen and nineteen, a national synod at Dordrecht, where after about seven months of deliberations, they expel effectively the Armenian faction within the church, which was always a minority. To they expel them out of the church.
0: We are running out of time, so I'm just going to uh, ask uh, one okay. more question. This was a huge, huge process of development for both the Netherlands and and Belgium today. Uh, why does it still matter for us today? So, A lot of people in these countries don't identify with theological aspects uh, of it. When we talk about the Eucharistic uh, squabbles, it's very hard to connect to for a lot. But c- can you tell us why, why it matters for us today?
1: Well, I mean, there. I often say, you know, if there were no Reformation in the Low Countries, there would be no modern states of the Netherlands and Belgium. So, in the, the, even, even if one is entirely indifferent to religion, it was, in fact, uh, problems of religious change and how to deal with it that effect, effectively end up creating two states that still exist today. Um, and, you know, Belgium at least has been historically very Catholic. If, if not necessarily currently and and the the net the kingdom of the Netherlands has always been very pluralistic so I think the lesson that you take from it is that just because it's something that you don't believe in doesn't mean it's not going to have an effect on how you how you live um and um, also I think the other lesson of uh, the Low Countries the Reformation in Low Countries is just how much war and violence can attend these um these, um, these kinds of events, these kinds of changes. I mean, you know, religious war, you know, we all like to think of that as something, you know, back from, you know, 300 years ago, but we we still continue to see the power of ideas uh, and ideologies in conflicts today, right? And, and some of those ideas are religious or theological. So, I think it's good for, um, you know, uh, uh, for states to understand what their origins are. In some ways, you know, the Netherlands and Belgium, the mo- these modern states are, they're accidental, right? They were created out of a particular peculiar set of historical circumstances. Um, and it's good too, for anyone to remember or to at least know what the circumstances were uh, behind that you know I mean again these are fully secular societies and so they're they're not going to have religious debates although I would argue that some of the sort of present day uh, public discussion about uh, a Muslim minority for example in these in both Belgium and the Netherlands uh, you can hear echoes of that uh, in, in in the religious debates of the 16th century. so yeah, the place of belief in a society is actually, um, I think greater than sometimes is given uh, given cred- credence to, and it doesn't necessarily be mean religious belief so much, perhaps as um, you know a set of ideas that you believe very strongly in. Ideas have great power, um, and and they for good and for ill, I would say.
0: Beautifully put. Chris Senkoy, thank you so much. Uh, Your book has uh, helped us a lot and will remain a valuable resource for us as we carry on uh, with our work, and we just want to thank you for joining us here today.
1: You You are most welcome, and thank you very much for hosting me. I always like the opportunity to be able to talk about this.
0: Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.